Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. It was a squeaky, lopsided aluminium gate which led to the main farmyard, and my sisters and I spent hours of our childhood swinging on it, sitting on it, and watching the clouds go by. We spent the summer of 1979 with our nana, Mary Kelly, in a small village in Drumcong, County Leitrim. It was there that we Jackines learned that milk came from cows and not milk bottles or cartons in the supermarket. We even helped her milk the cows. It was our first encounter with sustainable living. Our nana grew her own fruit and vegetables in the upper garden and the hens, turkeys, pigs and cows she kept ensured that there was always plenty of food on the table. Although we kids just thought Nana was poor and couldn't afford the shop-bought produce. Just last month, my 19-year-old daughter and her cousins got to sit on that same gate when my four sisters and I and our families, now scattered across Europe, were finally able to gather with our parents for our glorious August family reunion. And after nearly two years of being separated by Covid, we admired my 78-year-old father's lockdown project, the successful restoration of my grandmother's almost 200-year-old cottage, which had been derelict for years. The outhouses, the meadows, the upper garden, Locks Score nearby and the local shop Come Pub Come Restaurant offered endless hours of enjoyment for all the generations. Kids wearing FC Bayern shirts, GAA Leitrim kits and Man United tricots sat side by side drinking 7-Up on the bench outside the local shop, speaking many languages with merry, almost musical accents. Our children are Europeans through and through. My daughter can sing with equal passion Molly Malone, Stolat Stolat and Ein Prosit Ein Prosit all unofficial anthems of Dublin, Poland and Bavaria. Born in Germany with an Irish mom, me, and Polish dad, she's excited to be enrolled to study law in Berlin this autumn. And she jumped at the chance to become a Wahlhelfer, an election helper too. Today, Germany votes to elect a new Bundeskanzler, or Chancellor, after 16 years of Angela Merkel. My daughter doesn't remember a Germany before Angela Merkel. This strong leading lady who played such an influential role in national and European politics, who's often been described as the adult in the room when a gathering of heads of state occurred, will now step down as Germany's leader. Miss Merkel has been a role model for a generation of young women. And my daughter wants to be part of the process when the German people exercise their democratic rights today. As for me, after over 25 years living in Germany, I too will miss Angela Merkel's reassuring presence. Wir schaffen das, is the phrase that we associate with her. We can do this, or it's under control. There was a lot to be done. Many crises to steer the country through. The euro crisis, the refugee crisis and more recently the coronavirus. She's widely admired here in Germany, an admiration that goes beyond her party political following. Germans even call her Mutti Merkel, or Mami Merkel, 
Yet the celebrity aspect is and always has been absent. No paparazzi race after her on the street. Many Berliners have spotted her jogging in the morning by the river spray in her trusty tracksuit. She sticks to simple outfits and the practical bob. And there are no expensive handbags or luxurious cars in her household. She doesn't give many emotional talks about her husband, Joachim Sauer. Although, when asked once, she said the conversations and the bond she shares with him is essential for her existence. My daughter once saw him shopping for bread and milk at the local grocery shops in central Berlin. There's no glitz, there's no glam. Although her political reign has not always been sunny and perfect, it's exactly this sense of normality, this cool-headed East German air of Bodenständigkeit, or groundedness, which appeals to many, regardless of their political persuasion. She is a daughter of a Lutheran pastor in East Germany, and a scientist herself, the epitome of the rational German woman. She is the inspiration for my daughter going to Berlin to study, and has given her the complete belief that she too can schaff es. She can make it. No dream is too big. The glass ceilings have been quietly, unostentatiously dismantled. Back at our own family reunion in Leitrim last month, as my daughter and her cousins swung on that squeaky gate, I was struck by many things. The importance of family and the possibility of a more sustainable life. And as we chatted to the locals, the great sense of openness to others we encountered in that small pocket of rural Ireland, nobody was treated like an outsider. Regardless of which political party takes over the reins of power in Berlin, it's my wish that this sense of openness and acceptance in a united Europe will prevail, even after Miss Merkel has left the political stage as the leading lady. In the near-ignored far corner of the yard, there is a compound clustering of most uneasy nettles. Unloved, useless, existing on dust. But the scent is a warm hearth scent, where the eye of heaven comes visiting. They cry out to us, for they are cousins in sorrow to the woodlouse and to the earwig to street urchin starlings with their mimicry and soft flesh beaks. These nettle crowds are green and grey-green and dust-green-grey, whose love embrace brings sting and hurt. Then, dry after June sunshine, they droop and wilt, like standing ladies discarded on the dance floor. For we tend to turn away from sorrow and from neglected things, as we hesitate to face the sadness of someone we love or pass quickly by some of the neglected poor of our streets and laneways. I was standing by the fuchsia hedge in the front garden of our house, a child, 
admiring the beautiful scarlet forms of the fuchsia flowers, when my grandmother, Nora, came out into the sunshine and sat on a bench not far from me. Over the wall, the Scots pine trees rose high and beautiful, and there were rooks squabbling noisily up at the very tops. There were bees, honeybees, bumblebees, all buzzing busily about the fuchsia flowers, and yet there was a warm and welcoming quiet about the garden. Nora was quiet, too, but not happy, even I could see that. She was dressed, as always, in black, for she had now been mourning the death of her husband for several years. Even though I was still a young child, I knew that her ambience was sorrow, and that she cried quietly to herself at night in her bedroom. I loved her dearly, for the gentleness of accepted pain and sadness was obvious in her kindliness and care. I left the hedgerow and moved around the garden to come closer to her. Once more I could see that she had been weeping, though quietly. I simply stood at her side, put my arm about her and rested my head on her shoulder. She took my hand and smiled. She told me, it's okay, she said. I was just listening to a play on Radio Ern. I'm not sad, just remembering. Then she began to sing, very quietly, in her low contralto and quavering voice, and I never forgot the words of her song. It began, The violets were scenting the woods, Nora, displaying their charms to the bees. When I first said I loved only you, Nora, and you said you loved only me. Is the song about you, Nana? I asked her. She laughed. No, she said. It's in a play called The Plough and the Stars, and a man called Jack Clitheroe sings it to his wife, Nora. We were quiet together for a little while. She did not cry nor sob, and I felt suddenly very secure in her presence. Maybe he wrote it for you, Nana, I said. Your name is Nora, too. Sean O'Casey wrote it, she told me, and it's a wonderful play, and sometimes the words make me sad, that's all. But I love the song, and I love the play. Sing another bit, I asked her, and she did. Our hopes, they have never come true, Nora. Our dreams that were never to be, since I first said I loved only you, Nora. And you said you loved only me. I thought it was so beautiful and so sad. And I said to her, you have a son called Jack, Nana. She did not reply. I knew she was unhappy for her son, away in North Africa. A son that rarely came home to be with her. Just then, a little old woman from down in the village came hurrying up the road that ran past our house. We children always called her Pupsy, as she seemed to half run, half waddle along like a young pup. Pupsy, mad Pupsy, always muttering to herself 
always alone, always dressed in what looked like a heap of dark rags and skirts. I was scared of her, and I moved away from my grandmother. Pupsy was just on the road passing the house when I saw Nana moving down the front path, calling to her. Pupsy paused, shook her head a few times, and began to waddle away again. Nana called more urgently, and Pupsy turned and came slowly back towards the house. I knew what would happen now. Nana would bring her into the kitchen, sit her down, listen to her nonsense, give her a cup of tea and some buttered bread and jam. Pupsy always had a black beret, dusty-looking, perched on her head. I thought of the hooded crow. I thought of the far corner of the yard with its compound clustering of most uneasy nettles. I would keep well out of the way. Hold the bar. I hit the bell twice. Ding, ding, and off we went. Last-minute runners grabbed the bar as they leapt dangerously onto the platform of the old, moving, open-backed green bus. Many of these last-minute runners were also anthem runners, the ones who dashed out of the cinema in the space between when the film ended and the national anthem came on, a national sport at that time. Fares, please. The leather bag sighing with the weight of coppers and shillings and the odd half-crown, ten-shilling and pound notes sequestered in a slot at the back. The ticket machine twirled the handle and out came the wide ticker-tape tickets for stage four and counting. Don't go past your stage or the inspector will get you, just like the goblins your mother threatened you with when you were a child and wouldn't go to sleep. The inspector saying, name and address, the bill will be sent, now get off at the next stop. Poor creatures, those dodging passengers, but I couldn't do anything about it. I was the conductor and the whole orchestra would collapse if I didn't do my duty. Having hungry mouths to feed at home, I found myself conducting the number 10 bus by night mainly and studying by day, more intermittently than full-time, in the new UCD library in concreted Belfield. What a misnomer. There was little bell about that suburban field to which the Archbishop had exiled us all from the cosmopolitan left bank of Dwyer's, Leeson Street, Alexandra and Trinity College with all those fine young Protestant women and Earlsford Terrace where the Earls did still seem to go forth each night. But there I was, the captain of the lurching green ship that flew from Onlore to the outer spokes of South Dublin. Being a full-time third-year student of English and history and bus conductor demanded a certain degree of balance, robustness and strength of character, especially when the bus went around the corner and I was halfway up the stairs. But there were many pleasant moments in that time when all the cool people seemed to be smoking grass, 
which special smell accompanied them onto the bus. And then there was that faint whiff of patchouli oil which pervaded the stairs as the women in long flowery dresses worked their way up to the upper deck. Oh, the bar! Being a recognisable regular of the poor successor to 86 St Stephen's Green, the new restaurant in Belfield, you'd have great difficulty collecting fares from people who knew you and who were heading into town for the oasis of Grogan's, the Coffee Inn and other islands of student civilization. If an inspector got on in such circumstances, the bus would empty of half of its student population at the next available stop. Like Kavanagh's ghost sitting on the Grand Canal bank as the number 10 past Bagot Street Bridge, you also knew the secret signs, such as the subtle game of polling, the object of which was to follow closely on the bus ahead so that you avoided collecting too many passengers, they having been collected by the bus just ahead. That was long before GPS, and you could see a long line of buses with similar destinations crawling one after another along Morehampton Road and all stopping dutifully at each stop. The trick was not to be conducting the leading car. The use of this latter word was also one of the secret signs. It meant bus to CIE initiates from the French word autocar. One of the conductor's tasks was to maintain law and order on the bus. A memorable such occasion was a Saturday night fight on the 46A going between Dunleary and Monkstown Farm. I had to ring the bell three times, which was the emergency signal for the driver to stop the bus and come around to help. I was valiantly preparing my ticket machine to use as a weapon when a pathetic fighter crawled out from under the pile and said, It's all right, I'm one of your own. This off-duty drunk conductor then called the Malay to order. These lads want to go home. It's the last car to Donnybrook. Good night and good luck. And off they got at the farm. I eventually got my degree and left for another life. I still think fondly of that warm bunch of brave and strong warriors of the road, especially those on the old number 10. This poem is about the stained glass artist Evie Hone, whose studio and workshop were housed at the stable yard at Marley House. Patience and Order Her cane rests against the table where she sits, brushing blue cold paint onto the surface of a piece of glass. The striations in the first coat fade with the second. When fired and lit, she will have winter blue light with the silver quality of the waterfall in the distant wood. The seasons are turning. So is the glass in the fire, where paint slowly fuses to the surface to be held together with calm, the heart will bind them. 
We wait for the slow emergence of her vision, a window much larger than herself, revealing itself to us piece by bright piece. She's imagined it completely, sketched out a cartoon in watercolor, pastel, brush, and black ink, a window to be realized with patient order. For now, though, the shape of this one piece, the brush dipped into cold paint, layered and layered again, each coat deepening into dark indigo to be blessed with light. If anyone calls to the studio, I'll tell them to return later, saying, just now Miss Hone is deep in thought, working on the big windows. Aymed Raka Kahamit Drapa Haran Shrohan Tilta Hiniagna Faringa Kunan Troig of Wintermach Tommy Down Kun Aymed Raka of Alu Ta Ganzaha Agafaging in Yov Don Hildur La Fada Marton Chort Titaha Agastirameg Bagart Neoan Shin Achton Grian the Velach Tiv Hirdan Eskamel Tigim Nach Rakig Meaks Nova Rish Gokan Blena Fearham a mach herna tauntracha, on oat ir gultusha, glown and harren. Agus quinim shear erna lehanta eme lunasa, in our foos clear me or shianta na deska, nor a snav me savro, agus dairiglum elu arash gotir ma oige. Driftwood. We have to climb over the stream that is flooding after the rain to reach the strand. We're there to gather driftwood. We're wearing jumpers today for the first time in a long while because the temperature has fallen and a storm is threatening. Not only that, but the sun is hidden behind the clouds. I know I won't go swimming again for another year. I look out over the waves from this remote place, Glencarn, and I remember the days in the month of August when I was released from the chains of the desk and I swam in the surf and I escaped back to the land of my youth. My grandson Rory has started play school. His bottom lip quivers and his china blue eyes darken with unshed tears when I ask him about it. I am not going to cry there, he tells me. And after a pause of considerate reflection, he adds, I am not going to scream or yell either. His determination to be brave catapults me back to a time I had to be brave too, when I passed the 11 plus exam and left the safe harbour of childhood. 
That year, I was the only one from my little country school to make the long journey by bus from Belik to Inniskillen to secondary school. I had never been to Inniskillen. On my first day, with only the advice from my mother to follow the girls wearing the same uniform as me when I got off the bus, I set off, feeling as though I were on a tightrope high above the ground with no safety net. Inniskillen was as vast and confusing to me then as I imagine O'Connell Street at rush hour would be to my grandson Rory now. I remember little about the first days and weeks other than walking from bus to school and school to bus in a fluttering blur of anxiety. In school, I was like a mouse trying to avoid getting stepped on. In this alien world, everyone but me seemed connected to everyone else. Then, one evening in the crowded streets on my way to the bus, I somehow became hopelessly lost. I think it was Philip Roth who said we forget some things, not because they don't matter, but because they matter too much. Maybe this is why I have no memory of how long I ran around the streets in blind panic. But I do remember eventually stumbling by chance into the bus station, which was eerily deserted. Helpless and scared, I sat on a bench and cried and cried. After what seemed like a lifetime, a bus driver in uniform came and spoke kindly to me. What a sight I must have been, a scrawny, blubbering, terrified 11-year-old in a uniform several sizes too big and black, clumpy lace-up shoes. My terror rose again when the driver disappeared for a few minutes, but when he returned he was jangling keys in his hand and whistling. He brought me across to a familiar yellow school bus which he unlocked. I got in. With its rows of shadowed empty seats it felt enormous. The road from Inniskillen to Bleak is a long and lonely one, clinging to the shores of Loch Erin. Usually the bus journey was slow, filling up with us children in the tribal colours of our respective school uniforms. This bus, however, swerved at speed around the hairpin bends. It felt like being on the merry-go-round in Bundorn. I was so tired and so hungry. I must have started crying again, as through a haze I heard words of reassurance coming over the empty seats to me from the driver. He left me at the top of the winding lane to my home. By the time I reached the house, he'd already turned the bus and was speeding his way back up that long, dark road to Inniskillen. I doubt if my parents ever found a way to thank that driver. I know I never did. None of us fully realise the ripples we create in the lives of others. Circles of influence that may affect others for years and even generations. That kind, decent bus driver didn't just provide me with a safety net on that day. He instilled in me a lifelong confidence in the goodness of people. New beginnings can be wobbly no matter what age you are. 
and few lives move in smooth lines. But there are people everywhere like that bus driver. He seemed old to me then. I hope he lived a long and happy life and I hope that he is still remembered most of all as being kind. When you're weary Feeling small Blessed. How blessed we are to be alive. How blessed to have the comradeship of real friends. To sit with them and break this leavened or unleavened bread. To know that we are treasured and to have the gift of giving love. How blessed to walk with dogs, to see the early autumn leaves come blazing into fire, to drive across a moonlit mountain, to be forgiven and forgive. How blessed we are to be alive. On this morning's programme, Farewell to Angela Merkel by Michelle Kelly. The Violets Were Scenting the Woods by John F. Dean. On the number 10 bus was by Frank Kavanagh. Patience and Order, a poem by Grace Willens. Imid Raka, Driftwood, a poem in Irish and English by Catherine Foley. The Kindness of a Stranger was by Olive Travers. And Blessed, a poem by John McKenna. The music was Ein Bischen Frieden, A Little Peace by Nicole. Maggie, played on piano by David Syme. Mama Told Me Not To Come by Three Dog Night. Serenade Number no. 1 in D Major, Opus 11 by Brahms, played by the Gevla Symphony Orchestra. Lee Oshin, The Legend of Oshin by Colin And Johnny Cash's version, with Fiona Apple, of Bridge Over Troubled Waters by Simon and Garfunkel. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Willem McCartney and the producer is Sarah Binchy. RTE Radio 1 You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.